6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 2 John. Well, we are in the second session of our exploration of the epistles of John. And uh, we took the third epistle last time. We're deliberately going backwards because we're building up to 1 John, which is really a sermon, not a letter, but it's treated as a letter. So we are in 2 John tonight, and next time we'll take 1 John. And uh, 1 John will be about five sessions, so it'll be about eight altogether. But we're in in, uh, the second session on the second epistle of John, as you'll find it in your Bible. And last time we talked a little introduction. The early church in the first century was obviously under attack from the inside as well as the outside. So what's changed today, right? Okay. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the Holy Spirit has anticipated every conceivable form of attack in the Bible. And uh, these three epistles are full of insights that are timely for each of us today. That's one of the reasons this is such a, a timely study for us. Okay. And so who was John? Well, he's a brother of James the Greater, as he's sometimes called. He was probably the younger of the sons of Zebedee and Salome and was born in Bethsaida. His father was apparently a man of some wealth we can, because he was uh, trained uh, uh, in uh, the normal education of a Jewish youth, and he ended up becoming part of the fisherman, fishing business that uh, uh, the, the sons of Zebedee had and also Peter and Andrew. And whether they're partners together or competitors, that's not clear, but in any case, uh, they all were part of the fishing industry there. And uh, John became one of the insiders of the, t- of, of the total followers. There were 70, and of the 70, there were 12, and of the 12, there were three. And he was part of that group of three. These were unique in that they were at Jairus' daughter's raising, and uh, they were, the three of them were at the Transfiguration in Matthew 17. The three of them enjoyed a closer proximity at Gethsemane, as highlighted in Matthew 26. And uh, they, they, along with Peter's brother, were also uh, at the Olivet Discourse, the four of them. And he was de- designated, he designates himself as the, P- he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He never uses his own name in his narrative, but that's the appellation that, uh, is by which he's well known. And that last week, of course, he followed with uh, Peter. Uh, everybody else split, but the two of them hung in close to see what was going on. And he had access to the, the, the council chamber at the trial, which means he had some kind of leverage, either because of wealth or uh, uh, for some reason he was able to be there at the praetorium and at the place of crucifixion. And Mary was assigned to his care at the cross, you may recall, which is strange when you think about it because he had four brothers. Okay? Jesus did, I mean. There were four, four brothers. Um, and they're named for you in the scripture. Jesus consigned his mother, Mary, to John the Apostle, not one of his blood brothers, so to speak. And that's interesting. And so uh, we're going to take note of that, especially in tonight's uh, uh, exploration here. 
And so, in the later years, John remained apparently in Jerusalem under, at, among the leadership, and but he was not there um, at uh, uh, at the time of Paul's last visit. His subsequent history is a little, is unrecorded. He appears to have retired at Ephesus, but at what time we're not quite sure. And these three epistles were probably written from Ephesus in any case. Okay, that's a conjecture too. He suffered, he suffered on persecution, was banished to Patmos, as we all know, where he wrote the book of Revelation. And then he returned again to Ephesus where he finally died. About AD 98, we assume, something like that. And uh, there is some extra biblical evidence that he wrote his gospel after Patmos. That comes as a surprise to most scholars. But uh, there seems to be some evidence of that, and there's some textual suggestion of it. But The writings of John, of course, he wrote five books of the New Testament. The Gospel, of course, the book of Revelation that climaxes it all, and these three epistles. And uh, so, and the distinctions of the gospel, he, the gospel was not a historical documentary, it was an editorial. It was written with a purpose, that ye might believe, and, and so forth. And, uh, and he does that same thing in his epistles uh, uh, seven times. And the, seven, the heptatic structure, the sevenfold structure, which is very obvious in Revelation, is also uh, discernible in the gospel, and even shows up in the epistles. And, of course, the book of Revelation is structured in sevens, more sevens than you can count. Um, and so, but the express purpose, many other signs, truly of Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing, he might have life through his name. That he, he, in his gospel, he makes, no, uh, uh, doesn't hide that. He puts it right up front. Well, Ephesus is a key part of this whole story. So it was the capital of Proconsular Asia, the province of the Roman Empire, which was the western part of what we call Asia Minor. And it was colonized principally from Athens. And uh, that's why it bore the title of the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. And they had the Temple of Diana and all of that. And they had a, a, an amphitheater, uh, or open-air theater, I should say, uh, that could hold about 50,000 spectators. And so... Uh, Many of those Jews took up their residence in the city and were the seeds of the gospel Then were sown immediately after Pentecost. And Ephesus is one of those places you really want to visit if you get the chance. It's really worthwhile. But now Paul's ministry, changing the subject, not John now for a moment, Paul's ministry in Ephesus uh, was the end of his second missionary journey uh, when he was returning uh, to Greece from Syria. And he remained for a short time but he, because he was hastening to keep the Feast of Pentecost. But he left Achille and Priscilla behind him to carry on the works of spreading the gospel. But during his third missionary journey, when he reached Ephesus, he didn't go to Ephesus directly. He went on the other side of a peninsula and made the elders come to see him because he wanted to avoid the crowds. But he wanted to give a final message to the elders there, and that's recorded in Acts 20. And uh, so successful and abundant were his labors that all who dwelt in Asia heard about the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. That's quite an appellation for Paul's ministry. And so he touched at Miletus, which is about 30 miles south of Ephesus, and had the, the elders and presbyters come to Ephesus. And he gave them a, a charge uh, that he wanted to give them. It was actually quite lengthy. I'll just take the, the highlights of it. He says here in verses 29 through 31 of Acts 20, Paul to, speaking to the elders of Ephesus, I know this, that after my departing, Paul says, shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking of perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. 
Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn you, everyone, uh, night and day, with tears. So, now there was obviously a rise of false teachers called the Gnostics. That came later, but that's the term we use even in those early times that emerged subsequently. Now, John, now, incidentally, when you get to the book of Revelation and you read the letter of Jesus to Ephesus, they apparently heeded that charge and were very strict about doctrine. That was the good news. The bad news, they were so intent on doctrine that they failed to attend to their devotional life. They were so busy for the business of the king that they didn't have time for the king. That was the indictment. Well, anyway, this is the situation that John is dealing with in his letters. Very similar situation. And so... Uh, Okay, see, the, 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 the indictment of Ephesus by Christ was that they had lost their first love. And so the Apostle John, according to tradition, spent many years in Ephesus, and that's where he, was, he died and was buried. Now, all the, the undertone for all of this is the Gnostics. And uh, the, the, that's the, respo the response to the Gnostics. See, the, the, the term comes from the Greek term gnosis, or knowledge. And it was, the word agnostic was coined... Um, by uh, Huxley, meaning without knowledge. Now that's the Greek. The Latin equivalent term is ignoramus, but that doesn't go over very well at uh, at, at cocktail parties. You know. Well, I'm an agnostic. That sort of works, you know. I'm an ignoramus. Doesn't have quite the same effect. Okay. But uh, it's a and uh, 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 the Gnostics were a mixture of mysticism and Eastern speculation. And if you mix mysticism. Uh, Eastern speculations and Jewish legalism into uh, into a ball. That's, you come out with what the Gnostics, various forms of what the Gnostics and Alexandria was their primary headquarters, which is also the primary headquarters of some of our modern translations, by the way. So that's another side of the story. But Eastern speculations for the Mystics, man-made traditions and philosophy, in effect. Colossians also deals with this: the idea that matter was evil, astrology, that angelic beings associated with heavenly bodies. They, they made that association. And then you mix in some Jewish legalism. Good and evil were derived from rules. Oh, really? And, uh, and circumcision and so forth, dietary laws are all part of the picture here. Another way to diagram this, the concept was that God had eons that came from them. Those are emanations of angels, archangels, principalities, powers. These are all eons or emanations. And they give rise to Christ, which is wrong, of course. Christ is the creator. That's what's being denied here. But there's two kinds of Gnostics, the Docetic Gnostics and the Serinthian Gnostics. Very similar, but with subtle differences. The Docetics felt that Christ was really only a phantom. The Serinthians felt that, well, he was a phantom between the time of his baptism and the cross. In other words, sometimes, sometimes he, he was an intermittent phantom, if I can say that just to help us understand. And the Docetics, komdokeo, uh, uh, which means... Uh, the, uh, to seem, he just seemed to be human, see, and did not have a real human body, but a phantom body. He was, in their view, an eon and had no real humanity, is their argument. All these things, the cults always have a way to deny the deity of Christ, and uh, that he was, wasn't was really tangible. That's a, That would be news to the people that drove nails through him, I think. Uh, the ascetics denied the reality of the physical body of Christ. The apostles thought they saw Jesus. But actually, he was not a real person, just the appearance of family. They claimed that Jesus never se seemed to suffer, uh, only seemed to suffer on the cross and so forth. Now, these views, of course, were 
uh, aggressively attacked by the early church father. Ignatius wrote a number of letters, and this was dealt with very early, very intensely. And uh, so and these, are, these views are prevalent in Ephesus, and therefore John is dealing with these in his letters, uh, and, and it, it climaxes in his sermon, which is we call 1 John. We'll get to that last in this whole series. Now the Corinthians, uh, that's named after the followers of Corinthians, uh, admitted that, uh, that the humanity of Jesus, but claimed that the Christ was an eon that came on Jesus at his baptism and in the form of a dove and left him on, on the cross so that only the man Jesus died. That's the way they try to play around with this. And uh, some thought that Jesus was just a man, similar to Christian science or some of these other uh, phases of so-called new thought. Paul dealt with this heresy very directly in Colossians. And uh, now uh, others held that Jesus was only spiritual, not material. And John also deals with these views in his three epistles. These views are these under views undermine the very foundations of the Christian faith and attack the person and work of Jesus Christ. To them, he was just but one of God's many emanations, and and uh, not the very Son of God come in the flesh. And uh, the, the the whole incarnation means God with us in Matthew one. But these false teachers claim that God was keeping his distance from us in effect. Okay. And when we trust the Son of God, there's no need for any intermediary beings between us and heaven. And these false teachings, of course, were a combination of many things, as I say, Jewish mysticism, Oriental philosophies, pagan astrology, mysticism, asceticism, all with just a, a dash of Christianity. Something for everybody. An attempt to harmonize and unite many different schools of thought. Watch out for syncretism, trying to harmonize dis disparate groups into one uh, ball, so to speak. And these teachers claimed they were not denying the Christian faith, only lifting it to a higher level. Watch out for those. And do we have any of these heresies today? <laughs> you betcha, they're just, if not more, dangerous than ever. Every modern erroneous cult is some ancient satanic heresy revived. There's nothing new in the New Age. Every new heresy has been anticipated by the Holy Spirit. Satan has nothing new to offer. And... Uh, we live in a day when religious toleration is interpreted to mean one religion is as good as another. Many people try to take the best from various religions and fabricate their own. To them, Christ is only one of several religious teachers and no more authority than, than they have. He may be prominent, but he certainly not preeminent is the point. When we make Jesus Christ in the Bible only part of a total religious system or philosophy, we cease to give him preeminence. Let's keep, in, keep that in focus when we strive for spiritual perfection or fullness by means of formulas, disciplines, rules, rituals, whatever, we go backward rather than forward. And we've got to be, be beware of mixing these various alluring things, uh, with trans, transcendental meditation, what have you, with Christianity. And so uh, be aware of these deeper life teachers that offer a system for victory and fullness that bypasses devotion to the person of Jesus Christ. In all things, he must have the preeminence. Now, by the way, one of the things, um, I thought I had it in the slide. I may have missed it passing through here to pick up a little time. But there's one thing I get a kick out of. You know, some of the uh, uh, Gnostics say that Jesus didn't leave footprints. You know, and that was their concept, that he wasn't really human. Well, they happen to be spirit correct. Did you know that? There were times that Jesus did not leave footprints. Did you know that? And you know what? Anyone remember where? When he walked on water. Good for you. Okay. All right. 
I'm being silly. I'm being silly. Okay. We, the third John, uh, the third epistle of John we took last time to Gaius, to, and this time we're going to take the second one. And uh, so we're going to take the, uh, to the elect lady. So First uh, John is more of a sermon than a typical letter. So we're leaving it to last as the climax of these series. And the, but um, the, the, this second epistle is really essential to having a proper perspective for the, what he says in what we call his first epistle. That's why we put him in this order. And it's rather remarkable to see how timely these letters are for us today. There is a cultural war being waged in our country with deep spiritual significance, far beyond simply cultural or political philosophies. Both 2nd John and 3rd John are short individual person letters. We don't know the order they were actually written. Um, most people assume they were written after Patmos, but maybe not. They might have been before that. It would seem that 2nd John was written to the same community as 1st John, but at an earlier date, since the false teachers evidently had still had access to the church in 2nd John, but had seceded from it in 1st John. So again, that implies that sequence again. And so uh, by the time... Uh, uh, of Patmos, Ephesus was diligent in doctrine, but had lost their first love, we know from Revelation. So you follow me on that? Okay. False teachers not only invaded the churches, they tried to influence Christian homes, and that's what we're going to focus on here. It is significant the pagan left continually embarks on a militant campaign against the family. Have you noticed that? As goes the home, so goes the church and the nations. The family is an important target in Satan's war against truth. And so uh, I'm going to suggest another thing, that the second, this book that we're going to ex explore tonight may actually be the most neglected book of the New Testament. There's probably few, fewer people, Christians, that know anything about 2 John than any other book. Why do I say that? See, if one of my suspicions I'm going to share with you is correct, it may harbor one of your biggest surprises. So bear with me here. Let's just jump in. 2 John, verse 1. The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. Now, John always speaks of himself as the elder, so that's understood in all three pieces here. But this is unto the elect lady. This turns out to be the central mystery of the evening. Who is he writing this to? Someone called the elect lady. And uh, so who is she? This identity is the primary mystery of the letter. And kuria uh, is a strange word. It, in the masculine, it represents Lord. This is the only place we have it in the feminine, as if it's a proper name, is one conjecture. Kuria, the lady. And uh, the uh, electi is a stra is strange use here because it's never assigned to any other individual in the New Testament as a single predicate, except in one place in Romans 16, 13, it refers to someone that's chosen in the Lord. It's a strange word. It's a very strange construction. It's given, it's given all kinds of scholastic focus because there are no precedents, there's no usage on to, le to lean on. The view of Curia is taken as a, by some as a symbolic description of the Christian church. And that, has, that view has occurred consistently since as early as Jerome. And if you study commentaries, and I've been through dozens and dozens of them, from Jerome on, virtually all commentators assume one of two things. 
Either that's an idiom of the church, and I'll show you why I think most of us would reject that for some other reasons, or it's some specific prominent person in the congregation at Ephesus, period. That's as far as they go. And I have waded through commentary after commentary, and I'm startled to find no one even discusses the conjecture I'm going to put on the table here. And it's just a conjecture, but you can, you'll can you draw your own conclusions here. Uh, Jerome uh, speaks of it way back, and I, you don't have to go through all these. They're in your notes if you want them then. And uh, incidentally, more recently, commentaries, Harris, Marshall, Plummer, Stedman, Vines, McGee, Wearsby, Walvoord, and other modern commentaries, make no mention other than those two views. And uh, now, the view of Jerome that this, uh, uh, that, that, that this term refers to the believers as children of the church, that may be comfortable to Jerome, who is Catholic in his orientation, but we are not children of the church. We're children of God. Big difference, okay? So that idiom is not comfortable to any non-Catholic, obviously, for a lot of reasons, because it flies in the face of scriptural usage. We are children of God, not children of the church. See, the church is always presented as a virgin and, and the bride and so forth, which is in con- it would be contradiction to use that, use that as an idiom. It's also very significant that this word does not appear elsewhere in this signification. And there's a further allusion we'll come to at the very end of the epistle to the sister of the elect lady. So it argues that she's a literal person because she has a sister. That's referenced actually twice in the letter. So that, would, that should be fatal to the Jerome view here, right? Okay, so far we're in good shape. Now, I'm going to suggest an alternative assumption that with one small exception I found back in 1850, I can't find, I expected, to me, this alternative presumption is the most, the first place, first thing I would have assumed. And I expected to find all kinds of discussion to at least include or rebut that. They don't even mention it, which puzzles me, frankly. See, the, the, second, the, the, the second view is that it's an individual, probably a prominent lady in church. No problem so far. This seems evident from a straightforward reading of the letter. The writer knows her sister and her sister's children. So it sounds like, you know, real people. If this view is correct, it's the only book in the Bible specifically addressed to a woman, by the way which is kind of interesting. Now, it's true that John uses a plural in a couple of places and as an individual in a handful of places. That creates some confusion. The fact that he embraces others as well in passing doesn't alter the intended addressee, though. Don't get confused by that. The family of the elect lady is clearly in view in this epistle. Are we together so far? So those are the two conjectures. There is a third one. And if I ask you who in the entire Bible is the most elect lady in the Bible, who would you suspect I'm talking about? Only one. Only one as the most elect lady, right? And that's the prima facie suggestion uh, that the recipient of this letter is none other, is the most elect of all women. The very one that Jesus entrusted to John's personal care in the first place, Mary the mother of Jesus. In John 19, that takes place. And by the way, in the very verse that's mentioned there, a verse later, uh, see, in John 19, Gospel of John 19, 
from 25 to 27 deals with this. In verse 25, it makes allusion. Her sister was standing there with Mary, by the way. Okay, that was the wife of Cleopas, by the way. That takes some study to come to that, but I'll let that go here. But what puzzles me is this view. I'm not pushing it. I'm just surprised it's not discussed by anybody. But the more I study it, I think I can come close to proving it had to be Mary from the text itself. And I'll show you why as we go here. There's one exception back in 1833. There's a, in the German, there's a, a commentary published in 1884. See what place I can find it. Anyway. So this is, most Bible believers from their, you know, because of their revulsion to the tragic and heretical deification of Mary by the Roman Catholic Church, tend to go the other way and dismiss her and ignore her situation and predicament. And, uh, and, you, and there, there's a very dismissive allusion at her prompting at the wedding of Cana, you may recall, where she tries to ask Christ to do something. He's sort of, he's not rude, but he you know, what have I got to do with you kind of thing. He then gives instructions, but you notice even there there's a, a, a dismissiveness. And we find that several times in the Gospels, where her motherhood later is sort of a, a footnote. It's, it's, it's not, doesn't give her any leverage in any of the situations. See, we know so little of her subsequent history from the Scriptures, and there's just, just minimal allusions in the book of Acts, once or twice is all. So she apparently remained in the care of John in his retirement in Ephesus. Now this would imply too that Second John may have been written much earlier than any of the things because she would be, you know, approaching a century old by the, by the time you get to Patmos and all that. See, most of what's published by the Roman Catholic Church has been contrived by subsequent popes to promote their doctrinal heresies. And there are many good histories there. You have to hunt for them. If you have a copy of Haley's Bible Handbook that was done before the Billy Graham edition, it has a, a section on the whole history of church that's worth having. Um, there's also a, a Dave Hunt's book, A Woman Rides the Beast, which uh, is quite a very doc interestingly documented history. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the books of 123 John. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.